So we were just at the uh, national gathering for our denomination. Uh, we are in, uh, if you don't know what denominations are or really care to know what those are, uh, <laughs> there are things called denominations, Baptists, Presbyterians, all, all sorts, different flavors of ice cream, All, but we're all kind of trying to proclaim Jesus as Lord. Our denomination is a Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. It's a mouthful. We abbreviate that by saying ECO, and, and that's kind of who the brand of Presbyterian that we are. And there was a national gathering that we all went to, Pastor Jen, myself, and two other elders, and, and my wife, Carrie, uh, where we all got together and, and it was a time of equipping. It was a time of learning, of being challenged, of where Christ is calling his church, not only at Bethel, but across the world, and to what he's calling them to do. It's fantastic. And there was times of worship and praise, and we were at this big church in South Carolina that had, you know, one of those churches that had like the pipe organ, all the pipes up here just like blasting in your face. Have you ever been at a church like that? Raise your hand if you've ever been, right? And when you walk into a church like that, you want that organ, if they're going to play it, to play it, right? You know, don't put the pipes up there if you're not going to do anything with it. Well, they delivered. They, they delivered on that, and I was very, very happy. And one of the songs that they sang there was In Christ Alone. Does anyone know that song, In Christ Alone? In Christ Alone. Yeah, right. uh, y'all love that song, right? Right? Yeah. Does anyone not like it? It's okay. No, if you don't like it, you, you can get out. No, I'm just kidding. No, I was joking. I'm kidding. It is, it is a fantastic song, and always in that song, in the third verse, when they talk about him bursting forth and Christ coming from, you know, it, the organ swells and everyone is just feeling all the feels. But did you know that that song is actually swirled in controversy? You heard that before? So in our sister denomination, the PCUSA, uh, they at one point in time were going to put out a new hymnal. And in that new hymnal, they wanted to include the, 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 the hymn, In Christ Alone, which was actually written rather recently, if you think of the span of history. And to do this, they wanted to adjust a line in that song. There's a line in the song that says, In Christ Alone, it says, The wrath of God is satisfied. The actual lyric is, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they thought, you know, not really a fan of that line. And what they were really looking at was the word satisfied because other places in the hymn, they had songs that talked about God's wrath. I think at, at one point, they kind of got unfairly characterized that the PCUSA was trying to write out wrath. But what they were trying to do was, was kind of change our feelings about wrath and not focus on it too much here, especially in terms of the cross. And so what they wanted to say was on that cross... As Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, which is also true. But it raised a question amongst everyone in that denomination and others who were following it. Why do we have to shy away from sitting with and understanding the wrath of God? Why do we have to shy away from understanding the true meaning of the cross where Kind of there is this collision of both wrath and love coming together at the same time. The writers of the song contend that it's both, that wrath, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, these are all intertwined together in the redemptive activity of our God. And if God is to be just, as I have said a couple weeks ago, just meaning to be true, completely true, not div divided against himself, 
he must act accordingly to all sin. But we also know that he is also full of grace and he's full of mercy. We need the full picture, my friends, the full picture without which if we don't have the full picture of God, and that's what the prophets really strive to do. They, they get raised up to call out a warning and to, to serve as a watchman, as, as Jennifer talked about last week. They, they get raised up to do that. But they also, the point of the prophets in the Old Testament, create for us a full image of who God is, his full character. And if we don't look at the fullness of that character, both wrath and love, penalty and forgiveness, if we don't have it, we create versions of God, little gods. Sometimes you may have heard it that you put God in a box. And I heard a comment at our national gathering in one of the breakouts that said, if you put God in a box, you will quickly find when you are in the times of the valley, when you open that box up, it's not God in there at all. It's some idol that you have created that is not going to be able to withstand and give you the peace and strength that surpasses all understanding to get through this time. Idol versions of God and theology are what continue to plague our society. They do. And I would say that it is Satan's work of making us think that we're the gods and a further separation from the one true God. So now we get to Ezekiel, and he is raised up now as his prophet, and he is to go, as we've talked already, to the house of Israel and explain how their idol worship, their years of idol worship, has far removed them from God, and now the consequences of that are upon them. Ezekiel is in the valley. And as I looked at this, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, I think, and I've, I've looked at it several times, are all occurring in this valley, this visitation that he is having with the Lord, and God is giving Ezekiel, this is how you are going to go out and tell the house of Israel that they are done. Now, we decided that we were going to go through the book of Ezekiel as a church and take our time through it. That's three to four chapters of doom and gloom. Y'all ready for that, right? No, so what I think what we're going to do is I'm going to try to, to kind of look at this section and maybe take a week or two to try to put this all together here for us, maybe not go through all the doom and gloom that's going to happen because there's only so many ways that you could say that God's angry and he's coming for you. Uh, but here, this first part here, Ezekiel is getting what's called sign acts. Say that. God is giving Ezekiel illustrations. He's giving him good images to play out for the rest of, of Israel so that they feel the weight of his message. Not that they just hear it, but that they feel and see the weight of what Ezekiel is saying. I think about all the times that as a pastor preaching, all of my illustrations, and there's always a warning with pastors when you do illustrations to make sure that the illustration doesn't supersede the message. How many of you all remember the illustration that I did about mayonnaise? Raise your hand. Remember mayonnaise? Raise your hand. Get it up there if you remember. Okay, good, good. Do you remember what that message was about? Yeah, so, yeah. So, there you are. <laughs> Got to be careful. They're cute illustrations. But here God is pulling Ezekiel in, and he's giving him very clear illustrations and training and explaining in this valley to let Israel know that it ain't pretty and it ain't going to go great. But all of this works together to give us a bigger picture, my friends, 
and truly understand the true God. Today we see the intertwining, the collision between the wrath of God being satisfied, accomplished, sent, completed, and the continuous activity of His enduring love. And that's what I'd have you remember today. The wrath of God is satisfied, but His love endures forever. So let's jump in and let's see where we're at here. So open up to Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Right now, I'm going to read this to you to see now what God is explaining and how He wants Ezekiel to deliver this message. He gives these sign acts, these illustrations to help drive home the point. One commentator says that God is kind of laying it on pretty thick here in terms of what he's laying out for everyone. So if you read it and you think it's excessive, yes, but this is, this is what God's, God's deliberately trying to be excessive so that they feel the weight of what he is saying. Ezekiel 4, verses 1 through 8, hear now the word of the Lord, everyone. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. And put siege works against it, meaning like war acts against this brick. Build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. If you remember, if you're the highlighting type, when you begin to see repetitive words, go ahead and give them a circle. We have a lot of against it, against it that's being highlighted. Verse 3, and you... Take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you the number of days, 390, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but now on your right, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign to you then, a day for each of the year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remember, the wrath of God satisfied, but his love endures forever. What is this wrath of God that we're seeing here? As I said, Ezekiel's carrying out a sign act. And what you need to see here is he is demonstrating the siege against the city. Not only is he demonstrating the siege against the city, but who is the one that's doing the siege? Did you all see that? Who is the one that was told to press the siege against the city? Ezekiel, yeah, that's very, very important. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Most likely what's going to happen is Babylon, we know what's going to happen, Babylon's going to come and lay waste to it all. And what God doesn't want to have happen is, is Israel to think that, oh, you Babylonians, no, he wants them to see that they're just an instrument, that the siege that is coming against them to which they will be decimated, to which they will have everything laid to waste, to which the temple will ultimately fall, is by God's hand. 
God is the divine warrior. He is the avenger of sin in this. And Ezekiel is stepping into that illustration, that role as God. He is laying down and doing this so that when he does this for them, they see that it's God is the one that is doing this. Then he says, make an iron griddle, like a fry pan of sorts, right? And that is supposed to be set in between him and the brick of the city. What is that all about? Is Ezekiel going to make pancakes while he's doing this? No, no, he's going to make something, but you're not going to want to eat it. But anyways, don't, don't read ahead. But this iron griddle is placed between him and the brick as an iron wall to signify that, yes, God is the one that is bringing this upon them, but their cries for help, their cries for mercy, he will hear not. It is a full separation between their sin and an almighty, righteous God. Fact chapter 7 in this valley discourse, verses 5 through 9 The Lord says to Ezekiel this, Disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come and has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult, not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations." And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Yikes. It almost sounds like the Pulp Fiction movie, if you've ever seen that, you know, where they do all of that and all this awful stuff. Don't watch Pulp Fiction. It's not appropriate. But just spent wrath that's being poured out. But Ezekiel is called to have two roles in this. Did you catch that? The first role, he is to be the image and the illustration of God, God being the one who is bringing the siege. Did you catch what the second role he was supposed to do? God tells him to lay down on his left and to bear the punishment of the sins of Israel. 390 days for 390 years of their continual sinning against God. And then he has to flip to the other side and do it for another 40 days for the 40 years, symbolizing the 40 years in the wilderness, the punishment that came from their disobedience. And it says again, he is to bear the sins of the people. We have a two-fold role here in this illustration. One, to be the God, the avenger of sin, who's just and righteous and wipe it out with his wrath. But the second one, that that same God who does the wiping out will also take on the sins of the people. Now, we can pause here and marvel at the beauty of this imagery. Anytime in the Old Testament where Jesus pops up like that, we're like, yay, look at this Jesus, right? But don't go there just yet. That's going to come. But don't go there just yet. This whole thing is being done to rock the world of Israel and to rock our world. That even though Ezekiel is stepping into the role that we know Christ will ultimately step into, one that is going to bear the iniquities of all sin, Ezekiel is not in Jesus' role here. 
He is not going to accomplish what only Christ can do. The sins are being placed on Ezekiel, yeah. And he bears the symbolic punishment for them, absolutely. But he cannot be the one to remove them like Christ can and does. He just bears the wrath for them as a sign, as an illustration to the people of what is to surely come and what it will look like and what it will feel like. In fact, there's even more powerful imagery, even beyond this, verses 16 through 17. Turn there now in chapter 4 and listen. Listen to this imagery. Verse 16, moreover, he said to me, son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. Underline that. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look to one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. This breaking off of the supply of the staff of bread as another translation, the staff of bread, staff in which you lean on for support. It's so that they are can so that they eat and they drink and that they are not satisfied. That is the purpose of this. So that they eat and drink in this time of exile, this time of siege, and not be satisfied. Be fully immersed in their dismay and their guilt, to sit in that dismay and to sit in the valley. This is what God is telling Ezekiel to show them. Have you ever sat, my friends, with the wages and the consequences of your sin. Have you ever done that? Maybe it's been forced upon you. That can happen. You do something, you make some bad decisions, and the consequences come, and you have to face it. You have to sit there and face it. But have you ever sat here and thought about the true condition of our open rebellion against the Lord? It's not a fun place to be. It's not fun to preach on, that's for sure. And the world around us tells us to not do it. Our world tells us, don't do those things. We are filled with social platitudes and fortune cookie theology of being okay with our lives and to do whatever what we want to do with our lives. And if there's a message that's being preached that's anything different than that, look at that with suspicion. Don't let people tell you that what you're doing and how you're doing it is wrong. Shame on them as long as I'm not hurting anyone. But to ignore the separation and the wages of our sin, to not sit with it and really put our minds around what is it about my sinfulness that causes this separation and what am I actually doing to God when I do this? It's to ignore God himself altogether and to render him to a choice that we can pick up when we want or lay down when we want. The need for him alone is no need at all in that situation, but rather just another option to try when we are lost, or worse, an option that we call on and demand reprieve, not because we need him, but because we want the siege to end. See, that's why I think the calls for reprieve and and mercy that God is saying, I'm not going to hear, is because I think he's saying, in your current condition, your motive for calling out to me is not because you want and desire me, says God. Not that you want and desire who I am and to be with me and to trust me. Your motive and your desire so that the siege stops. We want, we want God as, as a form of aspirin, you know, 12-hour relief, thanks be to the Lord, right? And not the salve in which he is, which takes time and which heals. 
completely. So God's like, that's not going to happen. Okay, so that's wrath. The wrath of God being spent out as a just God. Where does the help come from? Where's the hope in this? Because we are good news people. Everyone in here who is here is here to learn about Christ, right? And so we know Jesus came. We know he paid the penalty for our sins and he rose again, thanks be to God. And we know that through him we have salvation. So where's the good news in here? We know what's going to happen. And in this text, there is good news. Yay! His love endures forever. We don't see it explicitly in the passage because the purpose of this passage And the conversation between Ezekiel and God is to feel the full weight and the consequences of sin, to know, to respect, to fear, to understand the wrath of God. But implicitly woven in here, in this little conversation, are signs of the other full truth of the Lord, that while wrath is being poured out, His love does endure forever. There is a collision of both of these paradigms here as Ezekiel is both God the avenger and God who takes on the iniquities, wrath and love, just as the cross is a collision of both of those things. The wrath for the the penalty of our sin, but then also the love that Jesus took on that cross. He humbled himself onto the cross out of his love for us, his first love for us. There's a quote from Augustine, who's an old, um, as an ancient, many, many years ago, uh, that you probably can't read, but I'll read it out here for you now, that tries to make sense of this collision. Augustine says, God's love is incomprehensible and unchangeable, for it was not after we were reconciled to him through the blood of his son that he began to love us. Rather, he has loved us before the world was created, that we also might be his sons and daughters along with his only begotten son, before we became anything at all. Rather, we have already been reconciled, made right by him, who loves us even while we were still yet sinners, with whom we were enemies. We were enemies against God on account of that sin. Therefore, he loved us even when we practiced enmity toward him and committed wickedness. Thus, in a marvelous and divine way, He loved us even when he hated us, for he hated us for what we were that he had not made. Yet because of our wickedness had not entirely consumed his handiwork, he knew how at the same time to hate in each one of us what what we had made and to love what he had made. Isn't that beautiful? Both can happen here. There's the wrath and there's the love. Where is the hope implicitly woven in in this text? Well, the first place where it's woven in is in the years. You may have glossed over the years. 390 years on the left, punishment for that, plus another 40 on top of that. You add those together, Old Testament, numerology, it's all over the place. You add those two things together, you get to the number of four. 130. And I double-checked that because I'm an English teacher by heart and I'm not good at math. So I double-checked to make sure that that all checked out. And if you were to jump to Exodus 12, verses 40 to 42, we would find out that 430 is significant. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was at night by watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this is the same night as a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. At the end of that 430 years, God brings them out. He comes for them and brings them out of their bondage. It's significant, this 390 and this 40. It is a little glimmer that the Lord is not just going to spend all of his wrath here and be done and wipe it all out. There's too many covenants in play. The Abrahamic covenant, the Noah covenant, but he is giving an illustration for them all that this is what happens when you cut yourself off from the Lord. The other side of the coin is the breaking of bread. Now, when you read that, the breaking of bread, if you're like me and you hear the words break bread, you automatically jump to communion and think, hey, this is going to be a great thing to preach on, right? Everyone loves communion. And so I sat there and read it. I'm like, does this have any communion tie-ins? Trying to go through all the studies and wasn't finding much. It was after the third of the fourth pass-through that it became clear what the significance of this turn of phrase is, which is going to get repeated in chapters 5, 6, and 7 as well, the breaking of the supply of bread. God is creating the feeling of thirst and hunger. The staff of bread being that which supplies life to them, he's going to break it off so that they will only have siege and exile rations. And not only a small supply, but a supply that is ceremonially clean. You want to take extra credit points and read the rest of chapter 4, you will see that God tells Ezekiel to cook bread over human poo. I decided not to preach on that too much because I didn't know how much y'all would want that to go in there. (laughs) And that was so that Israel knows that any food that you eat in these foreign lands is completely unclean. I will break off that supply of bread. Full separation. But if you flip the script, everyone, flip the script on this, who is the one that's called the true bread of life? Who is the one that said to the woman at the well, drink from my well and never thirst again? The point of this time for Israel, this time in the valley, is to rock the world to the truth of their sin and separation, but also that they long for truly the true bread of life and the water from Jesus Christ that causes them to never thirst again. Yes, God's wrath is satisfied in the destruction of sin, but his steadfast love endures forever. He will not let his anger linger too long. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. In the valley alone, we are helpless. We have all had valley times, and if you haven't had a valley time yet, hold on, it is coming. We all have had valley times. Sometimes God brings us into the valley so that he can refine us, so that he can make us stronger and more into his image so that we long and thirst for him and not just pray a prayer of God, please let this pain go away. It's a deeper, deeper-seated faith and ask for the Lord, and he brings us into these valleys so that we realize and come alive to that. Sin is real. And the truth about it is real, and we can't gloss over these hard texts in the, in, in, the, in the Old Testament. I have a pit in my stomach every Sunday now as I come in here to preach, because I'm like, I don't, even, I don't know how this is going to go, right? But I was convicted this morning, the Lord saying to me, do not be ashamed of my gospel. I cannot be ashamed of it. This is what's here, and this is what is good for teaching to remind us that Though the wrath of God is there, 
It's satisfied. It's actually been completely satisfied now because of Christ. His love endures forever. That is the type of God that isn't an idol, that isn't in a box. That is the true God. And so when valleys befall you all, remember that. That he's with you and walks you beside in that valley to refine and make you stronger and to long for him and not just the cessation of the pain and the sorrow that you are feeling. He is a good and righteous and loving God. And he demonstrates that to us, lest we forget, in his son, Jesus Christ. For this is how God is loving the world. He sends his son, Jesus. Why? So we can have salvation first. God, the avenger, the one who dispels his wrath against sin, is also the one who bears the iniquity for all time, once and for all. The wrath is satisfied, yes, but his love endures forever. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for tough teachings and bringing us into moments of the valley, that in the moments when these happen, we, we don't understand, we don't get it. Sometimes we get angry at you. Sometimes we shut our Bibles up. We don't pray anymore. But God, in those valleys, these are the times where you call us to incline our ear and our hearts even more so to long for the peace and the love and the grace found in your son, Jesus. And to let that be the true bread and the true water in which we drink and eat to be fully satisfied through however long that journey may be, even if the valley leads us to death and perfect healing with you in heaven. God, as a body of believers, Lord, give us strength to not look at this with shallow faith, but with deep, deep faith that's rich, that is being taught to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that's filling in the gaps where we don't understand with trust and love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, my friends, our God is true, our God is faithful, and his steadfast love endures forever. Whether you're in the valley or whether you're on the mountaintop, either way, he is there. Give him praise. Lean on him for strength and peace that surpasses all understanding for the total motivation of just to know and be with him. Share that good news with others as you leave here today. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. We will start the congregational meeting in about five minutes. Go with the Lord.